What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where uh, good taste and bad taste we have <laughs> both of those things. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. Uh, a little bit of a frog in my throat this week, but uh, mm. none the worse for wear. Mm. And uh, with me, as always, absorbing my uh, my germs is uh, sitting across from me, my scintillating, intelligent, toweringly intelligent co-host. Uh-huh. But That's Whitney, you. Introduce Whitney's yourself. got a frog in his throat, and if I croak sometime this week, you'll know who to blame. Ribbit joke. Anyway, oh my name is William Bibiani. I'm. I'm. It's late, and no, I don't I'm, have any I'm, good jokes. I'm the dad, and you're the one making the dad jokes. Yeah, but I'm the I'm the funny uncle. Oh, there. Well, you're the uncle. There you go. Anyway, my name is <laughs> William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibs. You're funny to someone, honey. Thank you. We've yet to find the person, but they're out there somewhere. Someone laughed, and I just want you to know no, a, you're, you're a friend to you're a I'm, friend of Bibbs is everywhere. A friend of mine is a comedian, and uh, he's you know likes to turn on occasionally, sure. like when he's with company, he just yeah. turns on the joke machine. Yeah, sure. You know, every, and, uh, any excuse to to do a bit. He made a few jokes with uh, with a friend of his, and she didn't laugh at any of his jokes. Ah, so, no, didn't laugh at it. That means they're gonna fall in love. Well, and, and he asked, what, what, what's going on? Do you not find my jokes funny? And she, she very condescendingly said, you're funny to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's like that, the start that, of a rom-com. That cuts deep. That's the start of a rom-com. They'll find each other eventually. Anyway, this week on Critically Acclaimed, this is a podcast where we review movies. Uh, we are reviewing the new releases, Ghostbusters Afterlife, King Richard, The Feast, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. That's all one movie. Uh, and the Christmas Switch Three, romancing the star. Oh my God! You are they, you are you just, are missing out on the Christmas on... Switch movies, man. Vanessa Hudgens is killing it every single year, and you're not even giving her a chance. And she plays twins in each one, right? Uh, no, now no, we are now. Uh, or is she playing identi- by identical now? triplet cousins? They're cousins, but they're identical. Yes. Okay, something weird's happening in that family. Very weird. <laughs> and we'll talk all about it at the end of the podcast when I review The Christmas Switch 3, Romancing the Star. Which is, not for nothing, uh, one of the better heist movies Netflix has put out this year. And there have been a lot of them. Well, there was Red Notice, and there was yeah. Army of the Dead, mm-hmm. and there was Army of Thieves, which was the best one I've seen. Uh-huh. Uh, there was, uh, uh, what was it, Blood Red Sky? Oh, I didn't see Blood Red Sky. It was, a heist. it was a heist in an airplane, and also there was a vampire on the airplane. <laughs> okay, and uh, um, and yeah, and now and now Christmas Switch Three. That's, okay. a, that's at least five. I got. That I I'm guess, familiar with. I guess we've unlocked Netflix. What they're into when it comes to escapist entertainments. There you go. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's start talking about uh, a movie which it's the big release of the weekend, and it's one of those movies that was delayed over and over and over again because of the pandemic. I have seen trailers for this movie. For like the last two years, and thank God it's finally out. Not necessarily because it's good, but because it's 
done. We can just we don't, finally... We don't need to think about we, it we anymore. We can stop talking about it, like, within a week or two. And whether you like it or not, I think we're all just happy to, like, hey, we get to move on to something else we can watch trailers for. Um, let's talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, this is the fourth feature film in the Ghostbusters franchise. This in, one is directed the, by the, Jason Reitman, Ivan Reitman's son. Uh, the second film in the Ghost Core. Oh, God. This gets a... It, it, they put the Ghost Core logo at the They're, beginning of this movie. This would be like if when uh, Lee, uh, Lee Winnell released The Invisible Man, you know, that really great Invisible Man reboot, but if it had opened with a Dark the Universe dark. logo, <laughs> and <laughs> like, you'd be like, still wow, trying. we're still trying to make that happen, huh? Yep. Uh, it'll come back. So in case it'll, in case, it'll be on Quibi. In case you missed it, yeah. Uh, in 1984, uh, there was a movie which had an all-star cast, but was still a bit of a gamble. Uh, called Ghostbusters. It starred Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, uh, uh, Ernie Hudson, Andy Ernie Potts, Hudson, Dan, uh, Rick Sigourney Moranis, Weaver. Yeah. yeah, it's a great cast, undeniably. But um, it it actually tried to take the sort of uh, a funny, shiftless layabout slob comedy genre, but combine it with with the extraordinary. With the extraordinary, and they took uh, science fiction, the idea that we've created uh, these incredible new technologies that allow us to locate and also apprehend ghosts. Mm-hmm. But also, we have a bunch of ghosts, so we have a bunch of supernatural fantasy stuff in it as well. Uh, it was kind of the perfect time for it because technology had just kind of caught up with movies and something like Ghostbusters could actually look really cool instead of kind of dopey, which is what a lot of like the supernatural ghost comedies had until that point. So it's kind of a miracle that movie worked because it's not only funny, it's actually like pretty smart. It's actually about things like entrepreneurialism and just how, just how shitty New York can be. The idea is that New York is constantly overrun by some kind of pest or another, and right now it's the ghost of New York's past, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense. Um, it's a really good film. I like the original Ghostbusters a lot. It it yielded two follow-ups. One was an animated series, which is very long-running, some of which was very good. And I think a lot of what people think of as the, Ghostbuster, the Ghostbusters mythology or lore or canon comes mm. from that show because we really only had that one other movie, Ghostbusters yeah. 2, for a long time, except for the animated is, series and its spinoff. Uh, Ghostbusters 2 is 89. Yeah. Which, like, that was like one of the biggest summers in movie history. That was huge. Because uh, that had. Uh, Ghostbusters 2, Ghostbusters Batman. Ghostbusters 2, Batman, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, one of the Star Trek sequels, I think, came I out think that one year. one of the Lethal Weapons as well. Yeah, it was really Weapon huge. 2, yeah. I think, yeah, came out. that It was just blockbuster. A lot of sequels yeah. came out that time. Yeah, and, and, Ghostbusters- and of course, the, the biggest film, uh, mm. UHF. Of course. Just got buried. Underneath <laughs> all of those other movies. Uh, if you love it, you love it. Ghostbusters 2 is a film that I grew up really, really liking. It's a little repetitive to the original, but there's some really, really great ghost effects in there, like the Scolari brothers, like the the ghosts of like the guys who were ex- uh, electrocuted, uh-huh. like you're in the electric chair. Those ghosts are scary. <laughs> Those are some scary-ass ghosts in a vacuum. Yeah, the, uh, the second one is, it. I mean, it's... The, the typical kind of Hollywood filmmaking in that they just repeated every story beat. You can, like, yeah. transpose the first they, and the second They added films. a baby, but, like, they did that thing a lot of comedies do where, like, okay, we get, took a whole movie to get the band together and prove that they're really good at things, and between movies, they broke apart. Yeah. 
Like my favorite ones are those are when, like in sports teams where they just said in the off season they started to suck again, like in Major <laughs> League Two or the Mighty Ducks Two, where it's just oh, like we just didn't train and we fell, yeah, fell I, off our and game. And now we're yeah. just as bad as we ever were. And I'm like, I'm not sure that's exactly how that works. Uh, that would have made more sense if there was like a lot of time in between the first and second Ghostbusters films. Oh, the curious thing about the Ghostbusters films, though, is Ghostbusters started to really deeply entrench itself in the popular consciousness in a way that a lighthearted comedy wouldn't, you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it is a slob comedy. It's mm-hmm. about these, these dudes who are, you know, they're roping in ghosts with these magical lassos. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they're just sort of these slobby exterminator guys in jumpsuits. And in many respects, the first movie in particular is really made for adults. There's yeah. jokes about, hey, Luca, get down off the... Do you, do you want me to get the cat? He's he's climbing up the screen door. <laughs> Luca. Spider cat over here. Honestly. Uh. Oof, that's a new one. Can't Don't like that. <laughs> Luca, get off the door. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but the original Ghostbusters movie has a lot of stuff in it for adults. I saw it as a kid. A lot of the stuff went over my head. The idea that uh, Dan Aykroyd has a dream about receiving a, a, oral a, sex from a ghost. Yeah, a, a sexy ghost like undoes yeah. his pants in one scene. Yeah, the yeah. idea that this was like a family film is, again, I think only cemented by the animated series, which was, mm. again, Luca? <laughs> He's got the rips. Oh my god! Or the zoomies. The zoomies. You call yeah. People call them the zoomies. Tears around the house for no reason. He's just excited, but um, he just likes. But yeah, it it was it was yeah pretty crass movie, but a lot of kids had a lot of kid appeal, and I think the show really cemented that. There were action figures, really cemented that. Uh, There was a pretty good reboot series in the '90s called The Extreme Ghostbusters, which was about Egon. Teaching like a new class of Ghostbusters, it was okay. I only saw some of it, but it wasn't bad. Uh, but and the, then uh, the all of those years in between the release of Ghostbusters two, and there was all this talk they're going to do Ghostbusters three. They never never really did, uh, and it became like a lot of popular culture from uh, like the mid eighties. Eighty four in particular had a lot of yeah. uh, f- films that. People our age saw as children mm-hmm. and began to venerate and canonize. Like Gremlins is another one. Right, yeah, Gremlins. Uh, Back to the Future was the next year, but you know, Purple yeah. Rain came out in '84. That whole era. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of films that came out in that in the mid '80s that, uh, again, guys our age, yeah, tended to uh, repeat and uh, venerate really, really highly. Uh, to the point where it, it sort of rose be rose in estimation beyond what it was. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. It, it's a, a, an impeccably crafted comedy. It's got great special effects. First I, one in particular, I like yeah. that first Ghostbusters movie a lot. I, I love that first Ghostbusters movie. It's, I do not understand how it became a cultural touchstone. Well, and how people became really kind of warm and nostalgic about it. Re- and, and weirdly when really it's possessive about it as though like a big part of your identity is that you like Ghostbusters. And I, again, you know, if like you grew these, up liking something, Cool, I know a lot of people are like that's that for fine, Pokemon or X-Men or whatever. These but. aren't like deep, rich characters to learn life lessons from. The whole point is that they're actually kind of assholes. <laughs> especially es- in the movies. Especially the, the Bill Murray character, Peter yeah. Venkman. And yeah. So it's it was especially curious to see this weird kind of backlash. And there's been some uh, controversy as to how much of that was actually manufactured and how much of it was organic, but uh, when Paul Feig came out with a, yeah. a reboot of Ghostbusters. I'm pretty sure they didn't want a lot of animosity connected to that movie. But uh, Paul Feig was uh, given an opportunity to reboot Ghostbusters. Yeah. 
And pretty much from the ground up, there were a lot of references to the original, a lot of cameos, mostly in a clunky way, but whatever. Uh, and uh, yeah, so Paul Feig rebooted it, and he did what Paul Feig does. Uh, look at this movie Spy, which is very, very funny, but it's also kind of shabby in a lot yeah, of ways. It's, like, it's a lot of set pieces, a lot of setups, and then you let your funny it, actors riff, and you kind of fun. assemble it in the editing room. And that's how comedies were made for about a decade, decade and a half. Mm-hmm. Ghostbusters, the original films were, you know, for for all of their flaws, a little bit more structured than that. They were a, they were more, a lot more tightly scripted. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they were based around the, the funny personalities. They were scripted by uh, the original films by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Yeah. And uh, they knew that they had to sort of have a, a story and dialogue in place, even though they, they hired uh, other comedians to sort of fill out the, the roles. Yeah. Luca... The uh, the Paul Feig film was a way too focused on that kind of riffing stuff, so there yeah. were a lot of just dead areas of that movie. I don't I don't yeah. like that movie. I like that movie it has fine. No, and it has nothing to do with nostalgia yeah. and certainly nothing to do with misogyny. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's it's again, I, Luke. Okay, you need to put, get him down and close that door because okay. he just wants. To, what is your deal, bud? <laughs> He's possessed. I don't know. Oh God, there is no Luca, only Zul. He's possessed by Vigo the Carpathian. Uh, so like, oh, listen, I, I understand that there's some people who don't like that movie, and it mm. seems to come from a weird, possessive, gatekeepy place. Yeah. It's also fair I, to say that the movie is a bit of a mess. I think the movie is a bit of a mess, but I mostly like it because ultimately, I really like the characters in that one. In particular, uh, Kate McKinnon's character of Holtzman mm. is a character that I really identify with. <laughs> I don't see a lot of introverted extroverts uh, in cinema, and that's sort of who I am. Someone who is, uh, you know ostensibly outgoing but is actually deeply uncomfortable with a lot of various forms of human connection and i really do think that character is a lot of fun and i think the character is a nice kind of heroic version of that i don't a lot of people talk about like how cool it is to see themselves in a movie or or how often they see themselves in a movie and i almost never see myself in a movie oh golly no so so this so kate mckinnon is one of the rare examples where i kind of did okay and so seeing people say there are no good characters and i'm like well that was me so i you don't like me i guess and so that kind of hurt and that's possible. People yeah. don't like me all the time, but right. uh, but anyway, there's stuff I really like in that movie. I think there's some good okay. character work in that movie. I really like the ghost effects in that movie. I think they're actually kind of nifty. Um, so there's there's a lot to enjoy there. But it's, I I get it if it's not your favorite. I, I don't like the riffing. It's over commercialized. Yeah. I think it. They clearly like did weird things with like the color timing in that movie, where mm-hmm. they tried to like bump up the color and make it like extra saturated. Mm-hmm. And everybody looks unhealthy as a result. Like See, I think the ghosts look weird... cool. I think I think maybe the, like the, the human tones were a little, yeah. a little off, maybe. Uh, there was a very strange reaction to that movie where, yeah, there were a lot of these uh, fans of the original who felt like something was being violated yeah. in rebooting Ghostbusters. And it really, it really wasn't, man. No, nothing... You made a kind of a bad movie, yeah. but that doesn't offend me. Honestly, uh, it made a lot of sense to uh, sort of approach Ghostbusters... From an all-female perspective, when you think about like the history of spiritualism and oh, how that go. was very yeah. much a women's medium—no pun intended, well, I guess <laughs> hey, medium—for uh, you know at the at the at the turn of the last century, uh, and how there were so many gatekeeping men who tried to take that away from women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I thought that basically worked. Luca, would you mind getting off of the coffee table now? <laughs> you know, I'm going to pause this. We all need right. to we need to give this guy a little cuddle and make sure he knows he's loved. 
All right, all right. The cat's been snuggled. <laughs> the cat has been snuggled. All is well. All is well with the world. Anyway, but, uh, we're pretty much is, caught up. But... All is not quite well with the world because now we have another Ghostbusters film. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that the last Ghostbusters movie actually made a decent amount of money. It just cost a ton. Yeah. And yeah. here, what they've done is okay. We're going to reboot this sucker. We're going to go back and make it a part of the original continuity, which the last one wasn't, to yeah. satisfy some of those diehard fans. Uh, and, uh, also we're going to, also it's a little cheaper. It's mm. a little less gigantic in scope. This one takes place in a little tiny set. I mean, town in the middle <laughs> of, uh, Canada. I mean, Oklahoma and, uh, yeah. Amblintopia. And yeah, it, this is very much taking a page from American graffiti and, uh, you know, other Amblin type of movies where everything is sort of small town fifties nostalgia, mm-hmm. which Every- is a very odd place to take Ghostbusters, which is very much of the 1980s that is a reagan era film yeah it's so weird to think of like how ghostbusters was a story about a bunch of like men in their 30s if not later who are professionals and scientists who decide to start a business and brush up against like uh bureaucracy ancient 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 deities but also bureaucracy yeah and uh because so many children connected with it in the 80s now that we're like trying to you know sequelize and reboot it today the the solution isn't to make it about another group of like older people who are like trying to start a business the solution is to make it stranger things the solution is to make it like every other well, now it's, 80s nostalgia riff make it more like goonies make it more, more like, like monster squad this, make it more like et this Excuse me. This bears less resemblance to Ghostbusters and more to Super 8, the J.J. Abrams film. Yeah. Which was just openly an homage to Steven Spielberg. Yes. So we have a younger generation. We have uh, Harold Ramis, who passed away. Mm. Uh, His character, Egon, has grandchildren. His daughter, who's played by Carrie Coon, uh, Mm. is really upset because Egon was an absentee father. He just Mm. was so obsessed with ghosts and sciences and the supernatural that he Mm. abandoned the family and moved out to this little town in the middle Mm. of nowhere for reasons that we'll find out later. We never heard about this character or Egon's other relationship. And she would have at least been born when the first two movies came out. So So this is, this is a pretty major retcon that Egon had kids. That that he had a kid that he wasn't paying attention to. And if she's not in it, then that comes into play. But uh, she has, she has two children herself. One is played by one of the stranger kids, Uh, Finn Wolfhard, Finn Wolfhard. And the other is played by an actress named McKenna Grace. Who's really good in this movie. McKenna Grace is good in everything. She's one of those child actors who I think very easily disappears into a lot of material. And I think some people would be genuinely surprised to realize how many times they've seen her <laughs> in stuff. Uh, she played uh, one, uh, the uh, Judy Warren in the uh, Conjuring movies. Right, right, uh, right. She's really, really good, especially in Annabelle Comes Home. That's way more about her. Uh, she's She played uh, the young Tanya Harding in I, Tanya. Right. Uh, she was in Amityville, The Awakening. I'm sure you saw that. Everyone saw that. Which one did I see? I saw the one with uh, the one with Bella Thorne. That was the one. That was, okay, the, I, I was I was kidding to the audience, right. but uh, they were in Independence Day Resurgence. They were in the Angry Birds movie. Uh, they've they've been in a little bit of everything. Yeah, but uh, now we Egon has has died in mm-hmm. in a ghost related incident, and uh, he has now willed this big spooky house in the middle of Oklahoma to his daughter, who as bad luck would have it, is being evicted that very day. So she has to move out to the middle of Oklahoma with her two kids. 
And uh, the ghost of Egon, invisible, uh, begins guiding uh, the Mechanic Grace character, his granddaughter, Mm -hmm. uh, down to his lab and showing her that he's actually been trying to prevent the events from the original movie from recurring in this town in Oklahoma. I love how much like people were like big on like spoilers. Like, oh, don't spoil anything in that movie. Literally the first shot in the movie is Egon's like, like there's like a one short scene. We don't see him. It's actually pretty tastefully done at the beginning. Uh, where Egon is driving away from the Ivo Shandor mining company. Yeah. Ivo Shandor uh, is the guy who built the apartment complex. Dana Barrett lived in the original Ghostbusters, and he was trying the, to bring the metals it was into, made from. Was yeah. like it was like a conductor for demonic energies, etc., yeah. etc. So the idea that uh, so basically all these plot points are pretty much revealed in the first shot of the movie, which kind of kind of undermines all the secrecy that's been around the movie. But whatever. Um, so yeah, Egon has been has removed himself from New York, abandoned the other Ghostbusters in order to do something supernatural. There's a mystery that needs to be solved involving the events of the original film. And the ghost of Egon, which we never really see for most of the movie, but there's a lot of like really cute little bits like Egon will like move a lamp yeah. in order to like suggest Egon's movement or paying attention. And- there's a really funny bit where um, uh, McKenna Grace is looking over um, the uh, the proton pack. Mm-hmm. And she's like, how did you build something this small? And the lamp swivels over to his wall of degrees. <laughs> oh, you're really smart. Of course. <laughs> and that's a cute bit. And honestly, if I'm being perfectly frank, you know, Harold Ramis is no longer with us. And that's very sad. Harold Ramis was, you know, not everything he did turned to gold, but he was a really brilliant comedian and directed some of everyone's favorite comedies. Uh, he directed Groundhog Day. He directed Caddyshack. Um a lot of people love Harold Ramis, myself included. Oh. Um, and I actually think the idea of incorporating Harold Ramis as an unseen ghost kind of works for a little bit here. Because if you think about it, we're Ghostbusters. Mm. We know ghosts exist. We've proved that ghosts exist. If one of us died, why wouldn't we be a ghost? What's who, <laughs> Seriously, what, why, why not? It makes perfect sense. So the fact that a lot of this movie is done with like Egon sort of playfully guiding their, their grandchildren uh-huh. into the family business is, you know, it's kind of like a necessity of the plot if they really want to incorporate Egon. But I actually think it's not badly done. Uh, until it is. Until uh, it is, yeah. Well, uh, we can talk about that maybe in a minute. Uh, oh, and also uh, Paul Rudd is in this movie, yeah. uh, saving every scene he's in because oh, he's God. Paul Rudd. Yeah, there, he... There's a single shot in this movie where Paul Rudd is in a Walmart, which you know clearly yeah. this is just product placement. Sony does this all the time. Yeah. And it's just a, a single shot of him walking down an aisle. He sees whatever it is he's coming to the store to get, and he kind of like breaks into this little like miniature skip with a smile on his face. It is the funniest scene in the movie. He just he's just buying ice cream. Like it's nothing. It's like yeah, it's cream. It's like you're you're there with him in that moment. I love that you zeroed in on how good Paul Rudd is in that scene because yeah. the other thing, one of the things I zeroed in on in the movie is how otherwise terrible that scene is. He goes to a Walmart. Uh-huh. In the middle of the night, and now I know that some Walmarts are open all night or really late at night, uh, but there's no one in it. There are no other customers. There's no one working there. There's no one else in the parking lot. And it just raises a lot of questions as to what does he not know it's not open and this is supposed to be some sort of mystery? Did they just get lazy and not hire enough actors that day. Like there's a bunch of like yeah. little weird things that don't feel well thought out in this movie. Yeah, like yeah. little things that just make the, that's one of the things that actually made the original Ghostbusters 
feel so effective is that actually there's a lot of little details and touches that make it feel really lived in. Like when the Ghostbusters would go to a hotel to like bust Slimer, they keep running into very incidental characters who just work there. Wow. And it just makes the world feel lived in well, as opposed to just some set where there's going to show up. It, it's, I mean, I, I hate to say this, it's such a cliche, but it is a New York movie. It's yeah. about New Yorkers. I think uh, the second one like was supposed to be about how New York is so full of negative energy that it's like coalescing into this physical substance. Yeah. Uh, but they don't really play that up in the movie. It's eh, just sort of been taken, done better, taken yeah. for granted. Yeah. None of that personality is here in this one. And in fact, all this film has is nostalgia imagery for the first. Mm -hmm. And there is so much uh, machine fetish where uh, the camera will just sort of like slowly pan over the the proton pack. You'll see the the switch and you'll see the light spinning inside. We're just sort of really like almost pornographically looking at this proton pack. Same thing with uh, the car, which has been driven out to this town. And and the The car is supposed to be a piece of crap. It was in the original movie. Like the whole point is the yeah, car sucks. It was already old. Yeah, and and Finn Wolfhard is here, you know, fixing up the car, and he's got to have a joyriding sequence, and there's like new gadgets inside of it, and yeah. of course we're gonna have the lassoing the ghosts any minute, and of course yeah. there's a very Slimer like ghost. It's weird uh, that you really didn't have to make like the first ghost that they bust, yeah. like their test ghost, like the one like their like first mission where they screw up a lot. You didn't have to make it look almost exactly like Slimer. Yeah, you uh, did. They, they you did really that, didn't have but... to. Like you, you, they really were like, really just shoving it in there. And there's a, you, you brought up the whole bit about the sort of fetishization of the tech. And just before they bust the new Slimer, I think it's called Muncher in this one. Yeah. Um, uh, they actually have a bit where they decide to test out the proton pack, and they're doing it like they're testing out Dad's a, a, shotgun. A gun, yeah. They're like yeah. setting up uh, jars on a log, yeah. so and we see them, them again. They're not shooting anything at ghosts; they're just seeing what damage they can do. And so here we are, sort of making it seem like really cool that kids have high-powered weaponry, which just feels off. <laughs> it feels. It, I get that Ghostbusters was always a bit. You know, a bit rebellious, you know, we're not really doing what the man wants us to do. But there's a difference between that and trying to sell kids on something kind of weird and gross. And that's one of the things that really frustrates me about this movie is so much of this movie is about convincing these kids, specifically Finn Wolfhard and McKenna Grace, but also uh, there's a kid uh, played by Logan Kim who joins in here too. There's a there's a teenager played his by Celeste is, O'Connor. His name is Podcast. He podcasts. Celeste O'Connor, who has no personality. Very little to do. Um, But regardless, there's this young generation, and in the decades since Ghostbusters 1, which, according to this movie, is the only interesting Ghostbusters thing that ever happened. Like, there's a couple of things that are alluded to from Ghostbusters 2, like Ray owns that bookstore. Yeah. But they never specifically reference the events of Ghostbusters 2. So the idea is there was briefly a ghost thing, and then that was it. None of the other stories happened. The animated series never happened. Nothing. There was one event. And when we get to this movie, uh, the idea that the only ghost thing that's going to happen is related to that one event again makes the world feel really tiny and small. Like nothing else interesting could ever possibly happen that doesn't involve Gozer in some way. And that's they, that they seems just, like a really wasted opportunity. Yeah, that they're they're not just going back to the the tech, but all of the exact same monsters, all of the exact same language, exact all same of the plot little, points, yeah, references. The same. And then, uh, if you wanted to, if you wanted to see more with Evo Shandor, there's, we'll there's get to more, see more there with too. Evo Shandor. There's more. There's way more mythos there too. But regardless, you know, 
the idea is Ghostbusters had a brief moment and then disappeared for decades, and now it's back. And now the uh, the children of the original Ghostbusters, you know, almost 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 like Ivan Reitman's kid or something, uh, are are here, and they're the story that they're in is designed to convince a new generation that the Ghostbusters were super cool, uh-huh. uh, were worth investing in, and we should probably make some more of these. Like, that's literally the plot of the movie, is to sell a younger generation on Ghostbusters. Which goes from, we like the original, we wanted to revisit it, and the characters, and the tech was fun, and there's a lot to enjoy here, and ends up making the movie feel... Really empty and shallow. Like we have nostalgia, but it's nostalgia for stuff we want to sell you. Well, and that, there's something that, was, that just makes it feel not fun to me. That that's this was a, a part of the the Ghostbusters universe that I I feel like I kind of missed out on. I, okay. I saw the original movie. Mm-hmm. I I did watch some of the cartoon show. Yeah, I watched, I watched a I, lot I of think, the cartoon. Show. I think the cartoon show was bigger than I kind of perceived at the time. It was huge. And, it was one of the highest rated like, I, TV shows I, on TV. I didn't give a damn about the toys, so I didn't even look at the toys mm. ever. And evidently, this was a huge cottage industry. It was. There were, was, a, lot of, uh, there were a lot of fun toys for Ghostbusters. You'd get the proton packs and the traps. I, and I remember there, there were a lot was, of like, neat ghosts that would like mutate if you pressed a button. I know there was a really bizarre line of toys where uh, like it was the Ghostbusters and their faces would extend in yeah, fear. Like if scared you, like, faces, like, arm, like, yeah. like almost, like a, almost like a Spike Jones cartoon. Yeah, was, yeah. That, that was really strange to me. So this this idea of making uh, Ghostbusters into something super toyetic yeah. is also something that sort of grew in the decades since the original one. The idea that ghosts exist in the Ghostbusters universe and people sort of forgot about it, I think, is kind of a, a cute gag. Yeah. It's a sort of thing that's weird because like if you think you, about uh, it, scientists prove ghosts were real. Uh-huh. But that didn't change the fabric of reality. And for a while there, well, I would the, have gone, that's totally implausible. But now we've got a whole movement that says vaccines are fake. And I'm like, was that whole, yeah, okay, fair enough. Well, there's that whole thing where um, teenagers were learning that Titanic was was a real ship. They didn't think that was a real ship for what? a second. I thought it was just something that happened in a fictional movie. I never heard of that. Yeah, that was that was a thing that was happening okay, for a second sad. there. So the That's the idea sad. that ghost that you know a giant marshmallow man stumped through New York and people just sort of eventually forgot about it is yeah. kind kind of cute yeah and, it's, it's, va- it's, it's more plausible, plausible than I'd like it to be. There is nothing funny about this movie. Mm. There's nothing exciting about this movie. Mm. The the thrills are all grandfathered in from the previous film. Mm-hmm. I think the cast is trying to give it their all. Uh, yeah, Carrie Coon's really yeah, solid. Car- Carrie Coon and Paul Rudd have a few wonderful scenes together. Uh, because they start sort of having a romance. Uh, Finn Wolfhard Fine. Does, does, doesn't do much of anything. In McKenna this Grace is genuinely great. I, I wish they'd had a bit more solid uh, uh, a take on McKenna Grace's oh. character. Because I was watching this with Michelle and uh, like Michelle is non-binary and it's clear that they're trying to give McKenna Grace that kind of vibe. Yeah. Like but they've also, but it also in a way though, female identified, but kind of, kind of androgynous. Yeah. And, know. and watching the movie, I was like, what, what is it about that? That just feels like they didn't nail it. And 
Uh, Michelle was pointing out that it feels like they wrote the character to be a boy, and then mm. they just changed the name, and they kept a lot of the dialogue, even if it doesn't really track. Okay. And I think that really does hold up. There's a lot of weird stuff where, like, McKenna Grace's character has weird attitudes towards their mother, and it just doesn't really read from her character, but it make more sense coming from a stereotypical boy character. Oh, okay. A lot of weird stuff like that. It just feels like almost there, but not quite. So I think McKenna Grace is actually doing some really good stuff with the character, but I don't think the material necessarily always supports them. Yeah. Um, but again, I do think the cast is mostly really strong here. I actually think that there's a lot of pretty like effectively entertaining sequences in this. Like I really like the uh what one of the was one thing in this movie, for example, that I feel is actually like kind of good fan service because we got to see something we never really got to see before, which is the Ecto One being used as a ghost busting vehicle as opposed to just a, a thing that delivers Ghostbusters to a place. It's got mm. all that tech on top. Yeah, so let's yeah. see some of that tech in action. So there's like kind of a ghost busting car chase. That bit's kind of fun. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I had a good time I, with that. That's I, I certainly so, have nothing against that. That bit works fine. The, the idea that we live in this world where uh, the supernatural is real and there's all these kinds of wild creatures and we're just going to do the same ones again is incredibly dis- disappointing to me. It's same ones! It's the, literally the, the same literally ones. Literally the same ones. It's all... It's you know, This is a movie that is like made of just references stuck together with chewing gum. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real bummer, and, and you know, the, and they have all of these fetish, fetishized moments where they're going to put on the jumpsuits and they're going to yeah. use the the ghost lassos again. They don't even alter it in any kind of interesting sort of no, way. They we don't, don't we, update we it. Did, we didn't make it our own. Egon didn't like play with the tech in the interim, or like maybe make it better or cooler. Mm. Um, and it all leads to, and I don't want to go into great detail here because it just came out and there's like some stuff, but it all leads to a big climax, which manages to be repetitive, but with Ghostbusters nineteen eighty four. Repetitive with the beginning of the movie, like literally the first scene, we just do it again, (laughs) which is weird, Uh, and then manages to come together in this really fanservice-y way that also manages to not work at all for me, and there's, there's a lot of stuff I like in this movie, like this isn't like a complete wash for me, but it's absolute commitment to just retreading the old, to paying homage in, with the exception of a couple of fun bits or ideas here or there, um, really ham-fisted ways. Um, and then just sort of like saying, like, here, you, you happy now? Here, I gave you this thing you asked for. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I wanted it good. I don't know. Like, well, we, yeah. given that uh, Ghostbusters 2 is, we can debate its quality. I, I didn't know people hated Ghostbusters 2. Oh, yeah. I thought that Ghostbusters is, it has 2 a, has a pretty bad reputation. That's weird for me. I, when I grew up, I saw Ghostbusters 2. I liked it when I was young. I didn't really know anyone who didn't care for it. I, mean, I think we all agreed the original was better, but no. like, I didn't know who hated Ghostbusters 2. And in the last like 10 years or so, I remember when Paul Feig's film came out, everyone's like, well, it's got to be better than Ghostbusters 2, right? I'm like, whoa, when did we turn on yeah. Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters 2 isn't that bad. It's, it's fine, right? It, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, I, think and I think it's perfectly I, I don't like the Paul Feig movie, and I don't like this one either. Yeah. So I think it, we, we need to bury these ghosts. We need to put them under the ground. We need to <laughs> stop concerning ourselves with the sort of sacred canonization of mm. the things we grew up with, because all we're doing is eating our own tales. Yeah. This is... L- 
the movie is like watching a snake eat its own tail. I, I uh, it's funny. I what was I what was I just reviewing the other day? I was I was talking about the uh, new Netflix Cowboy Bebop. Uh huh. And it's so weird watching that show, which I didn't particularly care for. There's it's good casting, if nothing else. Uh, but uh, it's so weird to watch that movie, which it feels that's our show. It's so weird to watch that show. Which feels like it's more inspired in many ways by Firefly than the original Cowboy Bebop, which oh. is weird because Firefly was inspired by Cowboy Bebop. And the expression I used was, it, "This feels like a tail eating its own snake now." Like this yeah, is, yeah, this is this just is... like you're just being gobbled up by your own legacy. And I feel like it's almost what's happening here, where like we're so desperate to suggest a legacy for this thing that maybe it doesn't have. Maybe it just doesn't have the lasting appeal that those of us who were around when the real Ghostbusters was on TV, mm. maybe the, the level of affection and commitment on the part of the world at large just isn't as big as some people would like it yeah. to be. Yeah, well, and it did okay at the box office, but people, it wasn't huge. There are some that some ideas, some stories, some properties that uh, we keep going back to, even if the films are like repeatedly failures. Yeah. Uh, you know, Peter Pan is one that we keep coming back to. Robin Hood, for some reason, yeah, I guess had, those are in the public domain. We've had good versions of both of those, but I feel the I've, one I think of is Terminator. Yeah, we keep coming back to Terminator. Terminator even though interest has waned completely. Terminator on that One kicks ass. Terminator Two kicks ass, even though in many respects it's basically just Terminator One all over again. And the problem with that movie is it's a repetitive story by definition it's about going back to change the going back from the future to change the past over mm. and over and over again it's by definition repetitive <laughs> you, and and every single time you do it you negate some of the other movies by suggesting we need to do it again yeah, yeah. so even though it makes sense that these are big giant epic movies that made a lot of money we want to keep making them it actually doesn't make sense to keep doing so ironically i think it makes sense in ghostbusters because the whole idea is we catch ghosts for a living. Cool, you could catch all kinds of ghosts. Nope, just this one. What? <laughs> just a certain very specific kind of ghost. We're going to keep going there's back no to I- this exact thing. Oh, there's what? No, what? No, no ideas of expanding the universe yeah. or exploring what the like, afterlife has even, to offer. Even Ghostbusters 2 is basically like we're going to kind of do the same thing again, except there's more slime now, and yeah. now it's a painting instead of a building. Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> like, that, I think that's one of the reasons why when people think about this thing as a big franchise, they're thinking about the animated series because the idea is every week a new ghost. Yeah. yeah why can't yeah. we do that as a movie? I don't know why we can't, but we're not. Yeah, just... It makes no sense. I, I hate that we keep on trying to leech money out of things that aren't working. Uh, we're trying to do it with Ghostbusters, and yeah, all we have is what we had before. Yeah. Uh, so, it... it all I'm seeing when I'm watching Ghostbusters Afterlife is their attempt to recreate a product. Exactly. I don't see a, a desperate need to revisit these characters mm. because they're beloved or there's more to say about the characters. Yeah, there's definitely we, not we like got an a, important story to tell. In a little bit of an exposition dump, we learned what happened to the Ghostbusters. I liked that. Yeah, it's fine. Of, like, what what happened to these guys eventually. Makes but, sense. Uh, I, I do love they they allude to the fact that uh, Winston is just a billionaire now. <laughs> That's kind of fun. Like, I like that because he was. I like just, that Winston he was got like, the, he, got he, the he cred. Was like, he was he was just like this grunt they hired like partway through their their uh, enterprise, and now he's a billionaire. Good. 
that makes able, me really able, able to ride that into the world of finance. Yeah, I feel like here's... so. So I'm I'm getting just gigantic whiffs of cynicism off yeah. of this thing, which makes it really difficult to enjoy even the things they're doing right. The idea is that we're supposed to be celebrating this thing that we love, but you're right; it comes across as very mercenary. And ultimately, this is one of those movies where there's a, there's a post credit scene in this movie. When I watch the post credit scene, which first off I don't think is done very well, uh, but regardless. I'm watching this post credit scene, which is clearly setting up future stuff. Uh-huh. And all I can think is we could have skipped the whole movie and started here. <laughs> Literally, that's all we needed. We didn't need yeah. this movie to get to that post credit scene. They're completely unrelated in many ways. And you could just move on from there. And I think that's what they wanted to do. It makes the most sense. And at that point, maybe at that like once we get to that post credit scene, maybe we can do something new. Mm. But we're we're not gonna. Nope. <laughs> I don't think we are. No, no. I, I don't I don't hate this movie, but I think there's a lot of things that don't work about it. I think it is in some respects superficially entertaining enough not to give like my lowest possible rating to. But boy, is this not like oh good, finally Ghostbusters is back. No, it's not a win. I wasn't filled with like a sense of fun or awe yeah. or adventure. It, it is uh, ag- aggressively plain mm-hmm. and and offensively derivative. Uh, this is not a film anybody needs to see. It should not have been made. We need to leave Ghostbusters alone. That's a, bit, that's a bit harsher along, than I'm willing to go, but I, gen- with, I agree with the general sense. Along with Peter Pan and Robin Hood and... One might even argue Harley Quinn. <laughs> like oh, we're, we're, we're overestimating. Well, now, Harley well, Quinn's Harley Quinn's doing okay. The comics do great. The, the TV do, shows the doing comics well. Comics do great, but she's been in four films, and uh, apart from the first Suicide Squad, none have been big hits. Admittedly, the last one was a pandemic release, so kind of a little slack. Maybe so. I I I'm not going to pretend that any film has you know a hit deserves to be a hit as a birthright. No, of course not. I 100% agree. I just, I happen to think Harley Quinn's an interesting character, but we're getting into the weeds. Uh, Let's move on and talk about another major release this week. Uh, This, speaking of Suicide Squad, uh, stars Will Smith as Richard Williams, the father of Venus Williams and Serena Williams, uh, who became, in case you didn't know, uh, two of the greatest sports stars in history. They're both like the top two tennis players in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, so this is a story of how Richard Williams coached them and brought them up and like had a plan for their greatness, like knew before they were born that they were going to be big tennis stars. And he, for, fortunately for him, he was right. He keeps on talking <laughs> like, about uh, throughout the movie. He talks about how he did have a plan mm-hmm. from their birth to turn them into yeah. tennis stars. And a lot of people and, have plans uh, from their kids before they're born. And they're not necessarily what the kids no, want. And also so this kid got uh, really bad. And, uh, he says he has a plan, but we never hear what that plan is. We don't, we this don't. is part of the plan, and this isn't part of the plan, which he seems to sort of bring up whenever it's convenient. I, I got expecting to like go into like his work shed, and it's like a beautiful mind, like full of like strings. Yeah, like, and, the, like, like step, really complicated. Like three years, this step happens, yeah. and three more years, and this step. But like none of that. Uh, we don't really get into that in specifics. Yeah, and uh, Richard Williams is uh, depicted as being a. Uh, very overbearing, he's very controlling, but in a very warm sort of way. Uh, mm-hmm. He's actually uh, beloved by his family, mm-hmm. even if he's a little bit of a, of a control freak. And uh, he's not really well loved by uh, his neighborhood or any of the professionals he deals with because he's the one who wants to be in control. Yeah. 
And uh, because he's looking he, out for uh, his kids, and he he isn't convinced that anyone else has his kids' best interests at heart. Yeah, and uh, he's he's suspicious of anything that anybody else might have to say about his kids, uh, whether it's positive or negative. He's mm-hmm. the one who has to be in control of this. And uh, this movie just sort of shows how what a difficult struggle it was for uh, Venus and Serena Williams to uh, start in um, pretty pretty impoverished. And rise yeah. their way up, uh, just sort of practicing on their own and dedicating themselves to the craft they, they, to just, the point where they became world champions. The movie details in a lot of ways how uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping in the world of tennis. Uh, yeah. If you don't come from a place, where a background where you can spend a lot of your childhood uh, just dedicated to spending like, you know, you, you, ignoring school and just studying tennis your entire life, how it's almost impossible to make it. And in order to do that, you have to be really well off. And in order to get and find like a good coach, uh, oftentimes you have to be white, uh, which yeah, they're, was, they're pretty frank about, which I do real, appreciate really about the racism in yeah. tennis and uh, how like, this is, this is an uphill battle for them. Even with all of their talent, it's an extremely uphill battle under the best circumstances that they've got. Uh, and, you know, it's it's interesting because obviously it's a bit of a foregone conclusion. I'd, I'd be surprised if there's a lot of people who haven't at least heard the names of Venus and Serena Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I think what what's interesting to me is considering how you, overbearing is a good word to to describe Richard Williams. Uh, considering how overbearing he is, how much how controlling he is, I think almost any other movie would be tempted to use him to create a lot of conflict with the daughters. When it's actually ultimately just kind of a sweet underdog story about this guy mm. who whose plan worked and how much well, his what, kids love him, and it's and ultimately just that attitude of familial warmth is infectious. What I've I found very curious because uh, Will Smith produced this, mm. and uh, it, this film was uh, directed by uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green, who did a really wonderful film called Monsters and Men. I didn't uh, see that one. Yeah, that's that's a really good film. It's about you know police shootings, uh, but. Uh, Will Smith has t- has produced a lot of his projects, mm-hmm. and like Tom Cruise, he's sort of taken over as kind of the creative heart of a lot of these movies, even if he's not directing them or writing mm-hmm. them himself. Yeah, it's clearly a Will Smith vehicle. And uh, he is very careful about the kinds of characters he wants to play, and many, many times now, Will Smith has played an overbearing father to... A, a kind of doting child who is going along with their father's will hmm. and whether or not the father is seemingly in the right or seems kind of overbearing in the moment will ultimately be proven correct about something. After Earth. After Earth is, is the prime example. Yeah. Here, where he starred with his own son. Yeah. And it's about how he plays an emotionless man who has to be emotionless to fight monsters who feed on emotions and has to teach his kid to be the same way. Yeah. And he's right about that. It's not about his kid teaching him to, to come out of his shell. Yeah. Moment. Which would you would you think would at least be part of it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, but like, but then as the child grows up, I learn a valuable lesson about them having their own identity. And here, like the closest thinking Richard comes to that is when like Venus William tells him just like, hey, uh, I'm ready to move faster in the plan than you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about like them saying anything that goes against the plan. It's about them saying, I think your plan is so good we can move along more quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is a sort of thing where it's like, okay, but that's weird. 
And, uh, a little. And Will Smith is playing this part very, very well. He's yeah. actually really disappearing into the role in a way I haven't seen him do before. Yeah, Even when he's playing like Muhammad Ali, he's kind of doing a little bit of an impersonation. I think here he's actually like getting deep into the this part. I think it's but, easy to forget because it's been a while that Will Smith is actually a very good actor. He's a very good actor. Yeah. Uh, but the types of roles are be- kind of betraying what he's trying to communicate to his audience. And mm-hmm. what he seems to be communicating is, I'm not as bad a dad as you might have heard in tabloids. It's difficult to watch something <laughs> like King Richard, even though this is about Venus and Serena Williams, mm-hmm. and not see the super narrative about Will Smith mm-hmm. laid on top of it. So I, I feel yeah. like I'm watching two movies at the same time. Yeah, I like King Richard as the sort of underdog story. Yeah, it's it, got a pluckiness to it. It, it goes on a little too long, but... Yeah, uh, it doesn't you need know, to be as long as it is, yeah. But you know that's not so grievous a sin. No, and I, actually, even then, I it, it it's paced pretty well. It's got a it's got a decent sense of humor. The supporting gas gets a lot of fun things. I think John Bernthal's really good in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Ingenue Ellis plays um, uh, the Serena and Venus Williams's mother, whose first name I didn't catch. I should look that up. Right. Uh, but I actually think Ingenue Ellis oh, plays Oracine. She's great. She's been great forever. Ingenue Ellis, like she's so damn talented. Uh, she was an undercover brother. She was in Ray. She was in the Help. Um, I would. I hope she gets more Oscar nominations. <laughs> Everyone's talking about. Oh, will Will Smith get an Oscar nomination? Ingenue Ellis. It should uh, more so than Will Smith. I think yeah. should be up for this because it's one of those thankless kind of biopic roles. But she nails every single scene she's in. She brings more to it than I think is on the page. Uh, she's really, really great. Yes, yeah. and, and I and I appreciate that they sort of take him down a peg. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Williams are uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and their faith is a big part of this movie as well. Yeah, not because, as big as you might think. The, the, no, but it's you know it's a, there, a lot of like their religious practices come into mm-hmm. how they practice tennis, so mm-hmm. it's part of the movie. Uh, but yeah, like watching this movie, I'm just watching the Will Smith story more than I'm watching the Richard Williams story or. Uh, the Venus and Serena Williams story. Yeah. Uh, And that's incredibly distracting. Mm -hmm. And it feels like an apology that Will Smith is constantly making about what we know about him as a dad. Yeah. I see your point about the super narrative. I really do. And as such, they're going for uh, this version of Richard Williams, which is actually forgiving Richard Williams of a lot of his bad behavior yeah there's a there's bit a, there's, there's a bit, a bit in the movie. Yeah, yeah there's a bit near the end of the movie where his wife brings up to him remember when your long-lost son came to visit us uh-huh. could no. we have seen that yeah there's and a you, whole bit where she's talking about like, i forgave richard, you a lot of crap richard williams has like 10 at least 10 children and you know maybe yeah. more besides uh at, shortly after the events of this film he actually divorced that woman and started dating somebody his daughter's age oh god uh, i didn't yeah, know that there, wow there's, there's a there's a lot of sketchy stuff going never on never take guy. your history from a hollywood biopic no no never no. so never take your history from a hollywood and biopic and because they're leaving out those details yeah. you're beginning to uh sense the f- sense an apologetic sort of tone mm-hmm. coming from the movie itself. It's interesting that uh, Venus and Serena Williams were executive producers on this. And a lot of people are pointing because some people have said like, wouldn't it have been more interesting to tell a story that was just about them and not so laser focused on their dad. And some people have argued that, well, Venus and Serena Williams wanted to make this one. Maybe their relationship with their dad is such that they thought this would be a nice story to tell. Yeah, yeah. And maybe from that perspective, great. Uh, but it sounds like there's a lot of nuance that we're missing here because we have that doting perspective. And 
Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's not a warts at all kind of movie. No, this is a very, very. It's a, it's almost Disneyfied. If there wasn't for like, <laughs> it's a it's a little bit rougher than that. But the yeah, first it's, it's, the first act when they're like they're in Compton and they're trying to like train, but they're training like on in parks where a lot of like local criminal elements is hanging out and they're sort of leering at the kids and Will Smith is trying to get them to stop you know engaging with his teenage daughters. Uh, and then that goes into a bit of a violent place briefly. Uh-huh. You could remove that pretty easily. I, you would you would move you would miss that part of their growing up experience, and maybe that would be to the story's detriment. But you're also removing a lot of the other stuff that doesn't make them that doesn't make it look great either. And you would basically you remove that bit, and you got a Disney film here. Yeah, and it's well, totally and, a Disney film. And it actually makes sense to include that though, because. Yeah. Uh, Venus and Serena Williams' stepsister was killed in a gang shooting. Mm. That's not in this movie. No, it is not. Like they're was... very selective about what's in here and what's not. They only want the stuff that's inspirational. Yeah, There's a yeah. bit in this movie <clears throat> because I actually was a little unfamiliar with this. Um, when uh, this Richard... is a, by the way, this this is not like well known details, but yeah. it's it's on record. And, and again, if you, and if you follow tennis, you probably know this better than we do, but. Um, uh, there's here's a little detail I didn't know, uh, which is I knew that Venus Williams broke onto the professional circuit before Serena did. I knew yes. that because that's just I remember hearing about Venus Williams before I heard about Serena Williams. Um, but it started off where he was training them both. They're only like a year apart. They were like training at the same time. They were both equally talented, but <clears throat> because they couldn't afford to pay a coach, they could only afford to pay to to like get a coach. For one of them. Right. So they went with Venus at the time. Um, and there's a bit in the movie. And like throughout this whole time, Venus is rising, rising, rising to fame. And Serena is constantly proving herself off on the sidelines. Yeah. Like she's winning a different trophy where yeah. nobody's watching. Yeah, exactly. And she's she's amazing. But Venus is getting all of the attention. There's one bit in the movie where uh, Richard Williams takes Serena aside <clears throat> and says... Uh, Venus is going to be the number one tennis player in the world. You're going to be the greatest tennis player in the world. And I knew that's going to happen, which is why I let Venus get all the coaching because I knew you could take it. And I'm like, that is some <laughs> sugar coating right there, man. Uh, that that is some serious like sugar coating. A little bit of back treading. It back, really back does. Like, there. I get it. If under, If this is true and again you want to question everything about a movie like this even if this is true i get it you're kind of backed into a corner only one thing was available and a bad choice was made it's a rough choice i'm sure thankfully it worked out um but man the, just that level of rose-colored glasses on this yeah the is, what i, what I wanted suspicious. to what i wanted to see was actually a, a little bit more of this movie an extended timeline of this movie yeah. where we got to see how venus and serena williams uh relate to their father now that they're adults. Yeah. Now like, that they're on what, their what own, is, they can control their own destiny. You know? How is the, how did their relationship change over the years or did it not change? Is that, mm-hmm. that's what this film seems to be implying is yeah. that he's just this great guy. Uh, and again, as, as a, an underdog sports movie, this works just fine. Yeah. If you ignore, if you, if you don't care about accuracy, if you don't care about like uh, what perspective we're seeing, if you just take this movie at face value is what it's telling you. It's very well made. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's engaging. It's got a lot of energy to it. The cast is very, very strong. 
Um, I kind of wish the color timing hadn't been so like dingy. It's kind of like washed out. I don't know why this is a popular like color timing aesthetic right now, but I wish we'd get over it because it just feels just kind of bland looking sometimes. They're going going for naturalness is why why they keep on doing that. But if you go outside, the world has other (laughs) colors in it. Like it's not everything is in beige. I don't understand. But like. Regardless, and this is not just this movie. Like Cowboy Bebop looks like this now. It's driving me up Ugh. the wall. Um, but um, <clears throat> beyond that, it's a very well made film. But it's just one of those biopics where you can just tell someone had an agenda here. Whether it was Will Smith or the Williams family or whatever, they really wanted this to be told this very specific way, which is something that you may find yourself holding back. How much? How emotionally invested do you want to get into it? Because part of it feels a little false. Yeah, yeah, but as 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 itself, it's a satisfying sports story. Yeah, it, so I'm a little torn. Yeah. It's it's phony in that sports movie kind of way where everything comes down to the big game. Yeah, but I'm okay with that. That works in sports movies. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, overbearing family, I saw a new Welsh horror movie. Uh, oh, okay. And it filmed entirely in Welsh too. The the Welsh language. Uh, It's called The Feast, uh, and uh, it takes place in the Welsh countryside, where a very well-to-do family, uh, the father is in Parliament, uh, the mother is, well... I, I, I guess well, she's the just wife con- of someone in Parliament. Yeah, basically, we actually don't know a lot about her other than she grew up poor and now she's very rich. Um, and they have two sons, one of whom is training for a triathlon, but seems... Mostly to just enjoy, like, <clears throat> sorry, fetishizing, like, shaving himself. Okay. Like, he's just like, I, I'm wearing black spandex, and that makes me feel hot. Uh, and then their youngest son is a is a teenager, and he plays rock music, hates his family, and likes eating shrooms. Um, it takes place over the course of one day. They're about to have a dinner party that night, and they have hired a young girl uh, from a local tavern to stop by and help them... Host three dinner guests for a three-course meal. Uh-oh. It really isn't a lot of work, if you think about it. Three-course meal? Three course, three courses, that's, you have all day to do it. A salad, an entree, and a dessert. That's Pretty easy. Pretty much, yeah. yeah it's, not, it's not super... And, and, like, and when you see the meal, it's like, okay, it's rabbit, all right, and it's like vegetable shish kebab. How much help do we need here? Some veggie so, skewer. Just roast this. Yeah, it's really not super Put complicated. Put on stick and roast. It's yeah. really not complicated. So they bring this young woman in and um, all is not well. Uh, this family is full of assholes. You find out that the guy in parliament is at least somewhat corrupt. Uh, the older son who's in the triathlon is weird and creepy. And it turns out that this young woman is weird and creepy too. Uh, she doesn't speak a lot. She gets really frightened by loud noises. She starts leaving phantom trails of mud around her, even though she she looks like her hands are clean. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah, it's like l- l- weird, you know, foreshadowing something odd is going, maybe something supernatural is happening here. And there's this general portent of this is all culminating. It's called the feast. So we know it's going to build to dinner. It's probably not going to be good what happens at dinner. Probably <laughs> something bad is going to happen at dinner. So anyway, that's the first hour of the movie. Just setting up for the dinner. Pretty much just setting up for the dinner. And then the dinner happens. Well, and there's, you said there's mysterious things happening. Yeah, though. but like it, 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 it's not taking up as much space as you'd think. And I want to talk a little bit about the difference between slow and slow burn in a minute. Because okay. 
I think they're easy to get confused. Um, it all builds to a climax, and the climax, maybe not in the way you'd expect, does lead to violence. There's at least two or three things in this movie that are genuinely grotesque. Like, I love I love me genuinely like, like watching them. You go like, oh, that's not a thing you should do to a human leg. <laughs> that's not a thing. Any leg really probably shouldn't be. You shouldn't be doing that. Get a little knife and yeah. spread your toes. Oh God, I wish this is this <laughs> this is worse. Um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty graphic. It's really gross stuff, and it does build to a genuinely creepy thing. Um, the problem is is that it's really backloaded. You know, in a slow burn movie, and I'm, I'm trying to think of like a really good example of a slow burn movie, like uh, Ty West's House of the Devil. Okay, it's a really yeah. great slow burn movie. It's um, you don't know, it, it does, something creepy doesn't happen until like at least halfway through that. Yeah, movie. well, nothing nothing is confirmed to be creepy until halfway through the movie. Right, but it's right. a story of a young woman who needs money fast so she can move out uh, and get an apartment on her own in college, uh, and she agrees to a babysitting job. But once she gets there, she finds out a lot of red flags here. First off, uh, the uh, the parents are Mary Warrenov and Tom Noonan, so already creepy. <laughs> it's creepy it's a, people. Something's aft here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they say, okay, so here's the deal. Uh, we don't have a kid. We actually have a mother who's extremely old, and we need to go out for the evening because there's a big eclipse tonight. Red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> we, did go, we did go out on the eclipse. Yeah, and we just need someone to be here with her. She probably won't even make a sound, and she'll probably sleep through the entire thing, but we can't leave her alone. Oh. And Justin Donahue's like, uh, no, but if you pay me a lot, sure. And so they leave her at the house, and she just starts wandering around the house, and the more she wanders around, the more we realize... A lot of things aren't right here. <laughs> a lot of things are weird. A lot of elements of the furniture make no sense. <clears throat> a lot of the... It, it doesn't track. And as the story goes on, we see more and more things that are wrong. Halfway through it, there's one shocking bit of violence that confirms that, yes, something really bad is happening here. And then we go back but, to it, waiting the for the character to but the, catch up. Yeah, the character up. doesn't see that happen. And so. then once they do, it all comes crashing together and it's really, really exciting. That movie works really, really well. It's a great movie. Because although it's slow, and technically for a lot of movie nothing happens, we're always getting a new piece of information. Right. Maybe it's not a big piece, but there's a new clue. There's something else. There's just something to tantalize that. It's never resting on its laurels. Like, yeah, 20 minutes ago we told you something creepy would happen, and just trust us. It's like, <laughs> no, every five minutes or so something new, even if it's a little thing happens. That's not, that's not the feast. Unfortunately, it feels like they do all the heavy lifting in the first act, and it's only about a 90 minute movie. The first 30 minutes, a lot of setup. Middle 30 minutes, do not need it. <laughs> and then we cut to the feast, and things kind of come together in a way that may or may not be scary to you, but ultimately, it feels like a lot of time is wasted. Even the sort of explanation for what's going on, what may or may not be supernatural, mm -hmm. a part of me respects this movie for keeping it kind of vague. Okay, there's I the, like that. Yeah, there's yeah. this idea that we know enough of what's happened to piece together that some, someone has done something wrong. Like something like a rule has been broken supernaturally. Like okay. there's some sort of local folklore. Um, Somebody walked under a ladder. So, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Or like, oh, yeah, no, stay off the moors, that kind of thing. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> they never actually go into great detail about what that is. Um, but the characters know what it is. Yeah, You know, so it'd be like, oh, you're never supposed to go up to the old Johnson place. 
So basically what happens is everything's creepy, everything's creepy, and then like just in the third act, someone says, did you go to the Johnson place? Yeah, before the start of the movie. Oh my fucking God! Like that kind of thing. But we never find oh, out what gosh. happened at the Johnson place. That kind okay. of thing. And you don't really need it. It's almost... It's almost well, excitingly sparse. That, that sort of thing can bring sort of an, an era, <clears throat> or an atmosphere of curse about yeah. a horror movie. And know, I like the atmosphere if, of if curse. So, something's been violated. And, yeah. yeah it's, you, you brought it upon yourself. And not going into great detail is almost kind of meta. It calls to attention the fact that we don't actually need to know what it is. We just need to know that something happened. Right. right someone right. woke the vampire. Someone pissed off the witch. Something. So I kind of appreciate that. But it's all at the end. You could have like parceled that off. Over the movie and kept my attention in the middle bit by instead of just taking it all in the last in the last you just just all the pacings off in this movie yeah yeah and it's really frustrating because the pieces are there but they're not like they're just not laid out right you know it's it's like it's like a three course it's it's like a three course meal but like the the, the middle the, the main course is really bland and they say we're not going to give you your dessert until you finished it but by that point. Your appetite's gone. Right. <laughs> okay. So it's like, okay, this is a great dessert, but you made me eat like a dry steak. A dry steak and like white rice. Like like eight cups of white rice, and now I'm just kind of done. I don't care that you've like <laughs> got a great bananas foster. Like it's not really Anyway, it's a bit of a bummer. It's not a total wash, but I don't really think it works. It was the do you know if this was expanded from a short? Because that sounds like you're describing a it short. It does feel like a short. It feels like it'd be a really good short. There's like a good 30 minute short here, like a Tales from the Crypt episode or something. Okay. It's not it's not quite that like punchy like a Tales from the Crypt episode, but it's got that vibe. It would okay. have been a really, really good short. I don't think it was based on a short. I didn't see anything about it being based on a short. But yeah, it definitely would have been better with okay. at 30 or 45 minutes, I think. Nah. But anyway. Um, oh, so, sorry, sorry, was it disappointing? Bit of a bummer, bit of a bummer. But uh, tell me about the most intriguingly titled film of the week. <laughs> uh, this is Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. Uh, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn is a Romanian film. It's from uh, director uh, Radu Jude, who uh, previously did uh, I Don't Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians. Mm. Uh, and title. Uh, Radu Jude, uh, I, this is the first film of his I've seen. But evidently, he works a lot in uh, the, the metier of criticizing authoritarian government mm. uh, as as they are rising in Romania and other nations as well. And bad luck begging your loony porn is about a middle school teacher who, and we see it rather explicitly right in the opening scene of the movie, uh, has made a sex tape. Ah, she's made a sex tape with her husband, and uh, after we see the sex tape, we then uh, and and it's explicit. It's it's an X-rated mm. sex tape. Uh, we then cut to her uh, wandering the streets, having phone conversations about how this thing got online. Somebody leaked her sex tape. We don't really learn how it got online, but there it is. It's online, and now she is wandering around these really dingy-looking streets of Bucharest, uh, just sort of doing her uh, daily chores, occasionally taking calls, and fielding some really foul behavior from the people around her. Hmm. Uh, it's not ever really made clear if people recognize her from her sex tape. Right. Or if she's just being badly treated by the mm. men in the public. Yeah. And also the, the camera tends to focus a lot on these sort of gigantic wide shots of this really kind of incredibly boring looking dirty architecture in downtown mm -hmm. Bucharest while we see her sort of wandering through the frame. It feels very realistic and ultimate -y through these portions. 
Okay. As she's just sort of wandering the, the streets, taking phone calls and talking about how she might lose her job as a teacher because it's gotten back to her bosses that she has a sex tape online. Oh, God, yeah. Then, then there's a middle portion where we cut away from the character. <laughs> okay. And it's just a series of little miniature vignettes, maybe about 30 seconds apiece, where we are given a glossary of terms that the director is trying to uh, bring in thematically to the movie directly. Rather than just allude to it or have it done in story or dialogue, he We're just says... We're shoving him right in the middle. Here's just an alphabetic list of terms, and it these goes... These will be important later. And it all goes to these wider themes of uh, just this sort of social chaos that's sort of risen up during uh, during the pandemic, where we're all trying to sort of point blame at somebody and we're all just sort of full of this pandemic wrath and how that in Romania goes back to a history of kowtowing to authoritarian figures and how, and this of course goes into this very modern way of how authoritarian figures now tend to operate. And this all comes to a head in the third portion of the movie where we get to see the, uh, it's almost like a real time meeting between her and the school board as to whether or not she's going to keep her job. Right. And they humiliate her. They br- they show the video to everybody, so we get mm. to see it again while she's sitting there. Jesus, f- full of like kind of simultaneously resigned and full of rage. Yeah, about what's going on, and the conversation that goes on is we don't want the kids going into this, but then these sort of like free floating racist associations start to come up and we get to see kind of the way modern discourse seems to operate now. And it's not long before she is being accused of teaching Jewish conspiracy theories to the kids by some anti-Semitic dick. Oh my God. And all of this is punctuated because this was filmed during the pandemic. There's all these shots of people like reminding each other to sort of like pull their masks up over their nose. And it's just like, everybody's just so annoyed by everything that's happening here. And by the time we get to the end of this, we get to see sort of, we get to see her defend herself. We get to see her teaching philosophy and how all of these uh, parents are all concerned about these vague, different things. And this weird sort of free association that all when cobbled together resembles fascism without any kind of organizational uh, thrust whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting view of fascism, isn't it? Yeah. The idea that it it emerges organically. It emerges organically from all all of these little disparate things that have nothing to do with each other, but it's all people who are looking for some kind of scapegoat. Every, every individual act of bigotry. Yeah. Adds up. If, even if those, even if the bigotry is inspired by something else or is directed right. at a different they, group, they, they seem unrelated. The concept of bigotry itself can yeah, take yeah. hold so, and it leads to this form of entitlement. Yeah, there are three endings. Ooh, uh, very much like Clue. We get to see each one in succession. Uh, there's that's interesting. A, there's a, a happy ending, an unhappy ending, and a completely gonzo ending. And I want you to see this movie because that gonzo ending is pretty special. <laughs> okay, don't ruin it. Don't ruin no, it No, no, I, w- yeah, I won't yeah, say. Yeah. I'll just say it's the gonzo ending. Yeah. This movie's fascinating. It's playing Sounds with... Really it's really it's, it's this weird sort of badminton match where we're examining yeah. a lot of uh, Romania's national character, the nature of fascism, and mm. this unfortunate shame that we're still putting on sex yes and a lot of this this poor woman is accused like they use the word slut a lot they're trying to slut shame her and she argues i did that with my husband we did it because it's fun 
I didn't put it online. Yeah. My my privacy was being violated here. Yeah. I don't need to apologize for any of this. And, uh, yeah, she's and the course, victim here. And of course, yeah. there are all these like high and mighty uh, purists who are like, oh, no, no, I would never do that. This is completely unusual. Dan Savage pointed out recently that we're going to enter an era eventually, pretty soon, where every politician has a sex tape out there. Yeah. Because... A lot of people do that. They like yeah. to take nude selfies or trade sex or have, tapes with one another. Or have some sort of fun. sexual experience online in some way. Yeah. That yeah. could be discovered. Yeah. That's totally a thing. Yeah. Everybody's going to have that because this yeah. is the this... way a lot of people sexually communicate now. Yeah. It's not relevant. I don't yeah. care. Well, not necessarily relevant. It could, it could if be, somebody but... violates your privacy, that's relevant. Well, it could, there are also people, yeah, if... there are also bad things that could be done, but generally yeah, but speaking, if, if just, just having a sexual relationship with your spouse if, that yeah, involves two, something digital. Two consenting adults, yeah, yeah, two consenting adults want to photograph each other doing whatever they're doing. So long yeah. as it's legal, go for it. Yeah. That's, that's not a problem. Yeah, ex- exactly. I agree with you on that. Well, it, the, um... but this, this kind of purest sex shaming. Yeah. Combined with this sort of free-floating hostility against educators, yeah, uh, and how it sort of springs up out of this really boring architecture in Bucharest, uh, is is all being sort of directed by this middle portion where they're trying trying to come up with this glossary of terms for anything that might be alluding to uh, fascistic ideas at large and sort of the uh, unfortunate authoritarian streak in Romanian history. Interesting. I really dug this movie. That sounds like a really yeah, interesting really, really film. I'm re- wow, I'm glad I'm, I'm 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 glad you saw it, but I'm mad I missed it. So I'll have to check that out. Uh, I'll try to check it out before the end of the year because that sounds really really neat. Um, I saw a Christmas movie. Of course you did, darling. What? Life is hard. Um, Tell me about your Christmas. Life movie. is hard, and I think I actually have been calling it the wrong title. I think I've been calling it the Christmas Switch this whole time. It's actually the Princess Switch. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Um, there is a movie called The Christmas Switch. There is, there? actually. Okay. There is, actually. That's one of the reasons why I screwed it up. But also, they all take place at Christmas. I, I, I'll have to go back and check. But regardless, I'll just... If, if I mess it up, I'll just leave it in. <laughs> My bad. The Princess Switch, excuse me, is a series of, like, romantic comedy-type films on Netflix starring Vanessa Hudgens, who, I must say, is an absolute delight. She always has been. She always, I haven't, I, she's I, always had kind of a movie star quality. She's one of those actors who, like, I didn't see, like, their breakout. Weren't they in, like, the High School Musical? High thing? School Musical, I yeah. didn't see those. Okay. So I missed, like, their breakout moment. And so I saw a lot of what they were trying to do to sort of, like, escape that. But I never actually got to see, like, Peak Hudgens. <laughs> and so this is Peak well, Hudgens. This is you, good Hudgens. Did, didn't you see High School Musical? Didn't we no, watch that together? That no, okay. I missed that one. I never, I never saw any uh, of the High School Musicals. Um, I, I hear they're fun. Uh, but for, the first musical is about how somebody might audition for a musical. <laughs> what? Like the musical doesn't actually happen oh my in a high God. school musical. That's hilarious. It's I just about that. the audition. That's amazing and I love it. Um, sorry, the Vanessa Hudgens in the original movie, and these are all still available on Netflix, uh, the original Christmas Switch, Princess Switch. Did it again. <sighs> okay. Vanessa Hudgens plays a woman who owns a bakery. And she's a very good baker. Oh, it's always a bakery, isn't it? Yeah, well, some. Not always a bakery. Sometimes it's a bed and breakfast. Uh, woman, she owns a bakery and she's been uh, uh, entered into a cooking competition in Europe. And uh, all the greatest bakers in the world are going to make various delicious Yuletide treats at Christmas time uh-huh. in the fictional country of fictional country Lugia. Um, M- Matobo. Yeah, something. 
Not so, Britain. They all have British accents. It's basically Britain, okay. but it's not Britain. We promise. Um, <laughs> Got it. Okay. While she is there, uh, it's also like at Christmas time, the prince of this country is going to marry the princess of another country. And it turns out the princess looks exactly like Vanessa Hudgens's character because both made by Vanessa Hudgens. Okay. Um, they c- realize this when they accidentally, like, literally bump into each other. And they have a moment, and they piece together that at some point the princess's like aunt or something like that abandoned the royal family and moved to America, and now they're distant cousins. But DNA apparently works this way, you know, like every once in a while. Got it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- that's just their justification. They needed to explain it somehow. It's like not just just a coincidence. DNA is involved, so it's fine. Um, they agree to switch places. Uh-huh. Because that's it's a Prince and the Popper thing. Uh, and uh, the princess gets to live the life of like a, a, a regular person. This is the like, first princess. First story, princess. Right. I'm just I'm just get saying the backstory because there's a lot of backstory here. Uh, the princess gets to live like a normal person. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens' character gets to live like royalty for a little bit. Vanessa Hudgens actually ends up falling for the prince, whereas the prince whereas previously it was just an arranged marriage and there were no sparks there. So when all is said and done, the lie is revealed and everything like that, or at least I think I don't think it's publicly revealed. Um and then uh, Vanessa Hudgens ends up uh, marrying the prince, mm-hmm. and uh, the princess ends up dating Vanessa Hudgens' best friend. Okay. Uh, and then it's the also sec- played by Vanessa Hudgens. <laughs> You'd think they're all played by, and the prince is played by Vanessa Hudgens. In the princess switch two, uh, Van- uh, Vanessa Hudgens is like the the, the princess and Vanessa Hudgens' best friend. They broken up. Will they get together again? Yes. Saved you a lot of movie there. But also, it turns out they have another cousin who looks just like Vanessa Hudgens. And I keep waiting for them to just introduce <sighs> Vanessa Hudgens. Just the actress. <laughs> just playing herself. That would be really, really funny. And I hope that's what they do for Princess Switch 4. But anyway. Um, and there but will this, be a Princess Switch 4. But this Vanessa Hudgens is like a 1960s Batman villain. Oh, God. Okay. She's like super vampy. She's got like long blonde hair, obviously a wig or whatever. She wears outrageous outfits. She's got sidekick henchmen. And what she decides to do is kidnap one of the one of the royalties and take their place in order to take over the country in a coup d'etat. But she kidnaps the wrong one because the princesses, for fun, decided to princess switch again. So she ends up okay. impersonating the wrong one. It's very fluffy. It's very light. A lot of like, oh, I didn't know you were you. And a lot of slamming doors. And honestly, these first two movies are breezy and charming and very silly. But they don't pretend that they're not. Uh And it all comes down to Vanessa Hudgens can carry a movie. (laughs) That's all it is. Vanessa Hudgens can carry a movie. Which I know she can. She can. This is the kind of stuff she does really, really well. She's playing it up. No one's expecting anyone to take this too seriously. She's very, very whimsical. She's very, very good at playing a character playing another character badly. Okay. So, like, you always know which one she is, even if she's pretending to be another one. Sign of a good actor. Sign of a good actor. Honestly, I'm very impressed. And honestly, I keep thinking when I've been watching the Princess Switch movie, especially once they introduce the villain in the second one, one of my great fantasies is to, like executive produce like a reboot of the 1960s batman tv show mm-hmm. like a live action half hour batman tv show same, same costumes new cast yeah new cast to get like adam driver to play batman <laughs> and then you get and then every villain is played by someone well, else adam I, driver is alfred 
Oh, he would. Okay, if he's game, fine. But anyway, my point is, it'd be funny to see him in the costume. I think. I think he'd be. I think he'd do the job. But whatever. You need someone famous to play every single Batman villain. I and this might seem out of left field for some people. I want Vanessa Hudgens to play Catwoman. She'd be great. (laughs) She'd be legitimately great. Okay. I'm, this, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, this is all this is all very whimsical and cute. The Princess Switch Three, which is the new one, which I'm reviewing now, uh, is a heist movie. <laughs> you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, what's more, it's a heist movie on Netflix in which the centerpiece is a group of people have to infiltrate a once in a year party held by an international criminal so that they can sneak into his vault and steal a priceless historical artifact. And while they're doing it, they have to distract him with a tango. Which was in True Lies and also Red Notice. And also Red Notice. It's Red Notice. Netflix did this last week. (laughs) Literally last week, Netflix did this. Red Notice costs more to make than Dune. No. Yeah, has a bigger budget. What? Yeah. Jesus Christ. It does not show on screen. You would I, I, never I'm sure. Know. I'm sure it went to tell. I'm sure it did. But my God, uh, what is what is really funny is that the sequence in this movie better than Red Notice. Well, it's funnier. Red, Red, Notice, Red Notice is, is limp and bad. So yeah. Well, regardless, it's like even the tango is better. But it's a Hudgens actually did the work. Um. So the plot of this one is it's a it's another Christmas in fake country Lugia, and. Uh, they have they have visiting for the Christmas a special emissary from the Vatican, and they have brought a priceless artifact, the Star of Peace, which is this unbelievably gaudy Christmas ornament. God, okay, and uh, it gets promptly stolen, of course, and uh, <laughs> and uh, they have to get it back because the last time that this thing got stolen for like a Christmas event was in like the 1600s. And they like excommunicated like the whole country or something. Okay. <laughs> so they really got to get the damn thing back before anyone finds out. And the premise of the movie is even in this fantasy country, all cops are bad. So they they literally just say, okay, so they stole this thing. The police have no leads. I guess it's up to two princesses to solve the crime. And in order to do this, we need someone who thinks like a criminal. So we have to bust out the evil Vanessa Hudgens from her community service, which we had mitigated to community service because we're corrupt. And uh, so they get her out on this like 48 hours kind of kind of pass. And they all the whole plan is, okay, we know it's this one guy. Why do we know it's this one guy? Because we're not going to waste any time in an investigation. We're this, it's this guy, and now we're going to have to like practice breaking into the place, and then we're going to have to break into the place, and then I'm going to have to impersonate you, and you're going to have to impersonate me, and I'm going to have to impersonate you at your parole hearing, which is unbelievably corrupt. And then that's kind of it. It's a big mistaken identity heist movie rom-com. Because now the evil Vanessa Hudgens has like an ex-boyfriend who's you're, gonna like fall in love with her. You're again. describing like a, a parent trap sequel. Yeah. Any like Disney Channel original movie yeah. from like the, the late eighties. Yeah, and we covered all of like the parent trap sequels yeah. in our in our Patreon a year or two ago. And some of them were okay. Honestly, Parent Trap three, pretty solid. Three in particular. Uh, not, not great, but solid. No, no, totally like it's, like it's a, a legit totally movie. legit movie. Like the cast is good, the plot works. Everything about it is fine. Barry Bostwick really brings it. He saves a lot of that film. But it's a, my point is this. You can do these silly sequels. 
You can do these screw. This is screwball comedy. Yeah, yeah. This is the kind of shit. Like if Frank, if Frank Capra were alive now, he would have to do this on Netflix because there's no market for it in like the mainstream theaters right now. What What would Lubitsch do? <laughs> he would do the, the Princess Switch Three. Is what he would well, do. Probably be working in TV, which is where a lot of the yeah, comedy is going. He'd be doing like the Ted Lasso kind of route. But um, in any case, this is cute. It's not as good as the first two. It's not as funny as the first two. But this is breezy and silly. And this, and is, this isn't grading it on the uh, Hallmark movies curve, yeah, is it? I, no, 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 no. I'm not gonna. It's not as Hallmark is a much lower curve than that because they're just cheap and sincere. This yeah. has some money thrown at it, but it's and it's not like great. If this was a theatrical release, I think it'd be graded on a bit of a harsher scale. Yeah, because you always have to like factor in: is this worth finding parking? <laughs> and maybe it's not. But at home on a Netflix scale, this is pretty good this is pretty cute i would say the first two are like legitimately charming genuinely like two and a half to three star christmas rom-coms this one is more of like a two and a half solid just because it just decides to be a heist movie and like kind of forgets it's anything else and after a while it's like could this be christmasy and they're like okay uh they're drinking a candy cane margarita well they talk about heist stuff and it's, I'm like, it's called the Princess Switch. It doesn't yeah. have to be a Christmas movie. Eh, well, it is a, though. Princesses switching. That's all I, it's got. But they chose it. To, they decided it should be, and the last two were. So we're doing it. Okay. I guess. Um, regardless, anyway, it's cute. It's really cute. And if you like the first two, it's totally worth seeing. If you didn't like the first two, this is not going to sell you on it. And if you've never seen it before, watch the first two, and then then decide if you have a law of diminishing returns or if this is worth it for you. But <laughs> regardless, I like that Vanessa Hudgens has her own Christmas identity swapping princess franchise, and more power to her. She's really, really good in it, even to this day. So bless her. Now again, in the next one, you have to bring in Vanessa Hudgens playing herself. That's that's the twister Rooney. That's what you got to do. How, how many roles can she play? Yeah. Before she dies of exhaustion. I want to see like I want eventually this is going to build to kind hearts and coronets. Oh, there we go. She's, she's playing, playing like every character family. but they yeah. all die. Yeah. Anyway, that is it for the new releases. Uh let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale once again in case you're new or uh or haven't caught the haven't got the gist of it yet. Uh we review movies on a scale of C- to C+. The lowest grade you can get is a C-. That's below average. A C is average. C minus is below average. C is mixed bag, some good, some bad. Maybe they're not worth getting excited about one way or another. And then C plus is above average. That's everything from we just genuinely recommend it to the greatest movie of all time. On that note, uh, The Princess Switch 3, Romancing the Star, terrible subtitle, has nothing to do with anything. Uh, a a, a f- slightly higher, okay, there's like a C, and there's a C plus. It's closer to C than C plus, but it's definitely far from C minus. <laughs> I'm making this harder than it needs to be. It's a about, C. I was about to say, that's a long way to go it's, to say it's average. It's, it's, it's a pleasant C. It's a okay. pleasant C. If this is the type of movie that you like because you like ditzy Christmas rom-coms on Netflix, y- you might grade it more highly, but this is a pleasant C. A pleasant C. That sounds like something you'd yell at a band leader. <laughs> it's like I'd love. yeah could could you play uh, Moon River Pleasant Sea <laughs> All right uh, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn is a C plus I, I think there's a lot of really interesting uh, harsh ideas in this one uh, 
it this this film will infuriate you though, especially that third portion where uh, this yeah. this poor woman is being humiliated by all of these like idiot fascist parents. Yeah. Uh, will make you want to throw stuff at the screen, yeah. uh, but you know, fury is a legit response to something that's trying to evoke fury. Uh, yeah, that's what I they think, want you to do. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's it's really 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 good. Neat. I'm going to give it a C+. Plus. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, the Feast, the new Welsh horror movie, uh, it's a high C-. minus. There's clearly a lot of talent here, uh-huh. but I don't think it quite works, and that's a real, it's a real bummer. Um, needed some development or something, like the script needed some tweaking, because there's definitely creepy stuff here, but it's kind of not worth it to get to it. Uh, King Richard, where do you land on King Richard? Uh, a C+. Okay, uh, I I really like Will Smith's performance, and uh, yeah, as as you pointed out, like an underdog as an underdog story, it functions very very well uh, as like a legit biography. Maybe not so much because it's yeah. more about the dad and not about you know the stars. Well, that it's we allowed know. to be about the dad. I for me yeah. for me what it boils down. I agree. This is a this is a high C for me. I had, was I was entertained by, it, but I don't think I'm gonna like carry it with me. Um, it's it's. It's more than two hours long, but it doesn't feel it. It actually like is like pretty brisk. Uh, the performances are all very, very good. But you're right. As like a Disney underdog story, this is rock solid. But as a biopic, it it's not that it's not a, it's not that it's about him and instead of the Venus and Serena. Uh-huh. It's that it's about him and it's so laudatory that it's suspect. And you can never quite get comfortable with it. Yeah. Because after a while you're just like, I feel like we're letting this whole thing exists to let him off the hook. Rather than we just like the guy, despite his flaws. Oh. Feels like they just want to breeze over the flaws in a way that doesn't feel genuine. Uh, and that's yeah, yeah. hard. It's hard to really celebrate that because it leaves the movie as effective as it is on its own, <coughs> feeling just a little false. And it never Which really is, feels complete as a result. Yeah, it, that and that phoniness is the thing that's keeping it yeah. from being a great film. If it had owned its phoniness, as I said, it had gone the cool runnings route. Maybe we could have settled. We could have settled for it, yeah, but it really. never really does. It wants to be. It wants to be gritty while also removing most of the grit. An unfortunate attempt. Yeah. yeah. And uh, finally, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh, big old C minus. Okay. This, this is. Um, bland to the point of of being completely insubstantial i i didn't like really watching it i wanted to laugh or be thrilled at some of this and there are a lot of details i enjoy about what went into the production but yeah this is just not not a good or interesting film in any kind of (laughs) measurable capacity i liked it more than you i think on a surface level there's some there's some entertainment to be had here i think some of the sequences are fun on on their own and i think we both agree that the cast is very very solid here um I think I was kinder when this. I, I reviewed this when it when it like premiered at like a festival or a convention or something like that in uh-huh. October, <clears throat> and I reviewed it and it was a basically like a, a general positive on Rotten Tomatoes, but it was very very mixed. And I think over time, I think the bad mostly outweighs the good, but I don't think it's terrible. So I'm going to give it a very low C. Okay, it's like I think the entertainment value and I think the cast elevates it above crap you don't need to watch. But I also think that there's so much about this that is just cynical and kind of misguided that it's genuinely hard to completely recommend it. Yeah. So it's like right on the edge for me. But I'll give it, I'll give it, since you gave it a C minus, I'll give it a slight C. Okay. Just because I think there, there is some entertainment value yeah, here. Yeah. Um, anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. We'll be back next week with a bunch of reviews. We're reviewing Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Which is Resident Evil Eight? Uh, it's a reboot, so it's kind of a, its own thing. Oh, but yeah. I think it's this. 
Seventh or eighth? It'd be the seventh live. I think there's an animated one, so I think it's the eighth altogether. Okay. I think it's the seventh live action. Uh, let's see. We've got we have House of Gucci is coming up. We have Holly Berry directing a movie called Bruised. We've got a Disney animated film called Encanto, and possibly more. I don't know. We'll see what's what's up. It's Thanksgiving it's, it's week. Like, we, we're sending a lot of it with our like families. That, we'll fit in what we can. That Gucci movie. You saw that Gucci movie? That Gucci movie's coming out. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll talk about it next we'll week. Talk about that Gucci movie. Oh, and also uh, next week we were gonna review Tick Tick Boom. Uh, this week, but uh, we neither was able to get to it before we could start recording. So we will we will get to that next week because we both really wanted to watch that. Yeah, we'll talk yeah, about we'll, it next week. There's so. actually a lot to, I, a lot to talk about in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll we'll get to that next week. Um, but uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody uh, for supporting the show. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, if you uh, want to join us on Patreon, it's Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We have a lot of exclusive shows for you there. Shows we review every single episode of Star Trek, every episode of the 1960s Batman. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We have uh, Patreon hangouts. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm a little dry in here. Um, and, uh, and, and, and more galore. So head on over to <laughs> patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show would not be possible, nor would any of our other shows be possible. So thank you. You mean the world to us. We appreciate all your support. If you want to join in the conversation, there's several ways to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. Hi, I'm at Whitney Seibold. You can also send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail, and answer your questions, respond to your critiques, give out recommendations, whatever you want us to do, basically. We're, we're pretty open. Uh, we also have a P.O. Box if you want to send us snail mail. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our P.O. Box is Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And also, it's, uh, it's the holidays, and it's also a big shopping season, and if you're looking for uh, gift items, you might want to check out Salt Cat Soap. It's our Etsy store. Uh, that I run with my partner, M. Lapis da Silva. Uh, we create and uh, sell handcrafted soaps. Uh, we have a whole bunch of seasonal items. <coughs> Excuse me. I need a drink of water. We have a whole bunch of seasonal items that are available. Uh, we also have a lot of evergreen stuff. Some of our Halloween stock is still available, including our very popular glow-in-the-dark ghost soap. It really glows in the dark. Um, and we're having a Black Friday sale this week, so check it out. Uh, it's on Etsy. Look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. You can also find the link on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Again, thank you to everybody who's already bought some. Really appreciate it. The reviews have been really, really great so far. So we hope you enjoy it and consider us for your holiday needs. <laughs> I think that's about it. That is definitely about it. Awesome we'll sauce. see you next week. Thank you so much. And until then, never forget, everyone's a critic. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.